Good morning and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast legally on the record but spiritually off the record about cultural politics political, and political culture. I'm Ellie Jacobs, joined as always by Frank Spring, who remains in an undisclosed location in the Southwest and drinks for the sole reason of forgetting the 99 NFC Championship game. Hey, Frank. Good morning, Ellie. As always, we'd like to thank our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative. Uh, for your praise and your hate missives, we are grateful. Uh, we urge you to subscribe and please rate us on iTunes. Uh, it is, as you know by now, if you've listened to this before, it's very, it's helpful to us. It's helpful to your immortal soul. It's good for everyone. Uh, please follow us on Twitter at at taking ship. And that is ship with a P as in posthumous. Uh, the rating system, as you know, actually does matter for with iTunes. It, uh, it, it will help us. It will help you. Uh, please take a few seconds. Give us a few stars. Uh, write us a review. Uh, send us a, send us a, a, some praise. Send us a, a weird, creepy hate missive. Uh, we're, we're here for all of that. Uh, we also now have a Facebook page uh, because we have just joined the 21st century. Uh, so please like or follow us on that platform as well because you can never get enough social media content. Social media content. Yeah, that's just an oxymoron of its own of its own making, isn't it? I know this is this is a disaster. <laughs> Social media content. This is what you call a cross-platform promotion, Ellie. This is good, good work we're doing here. Yeah, here in the look, look at look at us. Yeah, I know exactly. Cross-platform promoting. Yes. Speaking of of other god awful things, let's let's let let us discuss what we are in fact not talking about. We're going to lead off our things that we are really looking forward to not discussing today with an important public morals announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, and however otherwise you may define yourselves, ladies and gentlemen and, uh, and gender rebels, uh, we have a warning for you, a public morals announcement. Seducers are at large. The seducers are at large and they will prey upon you and yours unless you remain vigilant. Be seduced by no one except perhaps... Uh, the co-host of uh, the podcast uh, Taking Ship, whose uh, seduction techniques are legendary, and you can tell we're really successful at this because we have a podcast. Yeah. So none, <laughs> none more none more successful at seduction than uh, the co-hosts of uh, of podcasts. What we are talking about, of course, is the and the seducers in this case, the seducers from which uh, about which you must be wary, uh, are of course. Uh, a series of interests, elected officials and others, uh, who would try and seduce you into believing that uh, there are there's a new breed of Republican who may represent the future of that party, thanks to their uh, high moral tone and their very reasonable views on governing and, and morality. Uh, and they, they're they're champion. They, we've seen past champions for a long time. These people were disciples disciples of John McCain. Uh, they, to a certain degree, remain disciples of John McCain. Uh, but there's a new there's a you know there, there's a new hero in town for them, and that hero is, of course, Arizona Senator Jeff Flake. Yeah. So for those of you who uh, haven't been paying attention this week, um, Jeff Flake, the junior senator from Arizona, who is up for re-election um, the, uh, next year, uh, which is an important aside, recently came out with a book um, called uh, "Conscious of a Conservative." Uh, using the same title as Barry Goldwater's very famous book um, that led to his president that during his presidential run. And in this book, uh, Flake goes on uh, quite a tear about Donald Trump and that the party's in denial about Donald Trump and Donald Trump doesn't rep represent Republicanism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There was a uh, excerpt published in uh, Politico magazine, uh, which spawned um, ravings um, from the anti-Trump right and uh, 
um, fawning from the anti-Trump left. And um, several other articles came out about that post. And Flake has been getting uh, uh, kudos and plaudits all over the interwebs from both Democrats and uh, never Trump Republicans. And what we wanted to talk about is, uh, you know, the warning about being seduced is Jeff Flake is not your friend. No, Jeff Flake is not Jeff. No matter what a Jeff Flake tells you, there is no sex in the champagne room. No, Jeff Flake may be a very decent man. He seems like he's a decent man, family guy, you know, he didn't he do that whole thing on a, Desert Island with a Democratic member of Congress. Who was yeah, it? Was it the guy uh, from yeah, New, Ham- yeah, New, New Mexico, right? Yeah, with Martin Heinrich. Yeah, he and uh, yeah, Jeff Flake and Martin Heinrich. <laughs> I, I, I wish I were joking about this. <laughs> There's so the senators, junior senators from Arizona and New Mexico, actually spent like I can't remember how long it was. I think it was a week on a desert island together, as a as an indication of bipartisan. Uh, you know that that pe- you know that that people in bipartisan circumstance, I guess, can work together if they're marooned. Like it was. <laughs> I, I, I I have, as many of you may know, I have an enormous amount of, of respect and admiration for Martin Heinrich, uh, and and I have no doubt about his ability to survive on a desert island by himself, uh, because he is just that kind of outdoorsman. Uh, but yeah, that's the, so. I mean, clearly that I guess there might have been some virtue to this exercise. It seems like sort of a you know, maybe some sort of high concept thing. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's Jeff Flake. Like he's certainly been willing to. I guess get stranded for, with Democrats to show his commitment to bipartisanship, and he is, by all reports, uh, interpersonally, interpersonally, and, and easy, or professionally and interpersonally easy to work with for members of both parties. I will give him that, frankly. Right. Uh, you know, I think the Heinrich Flake show was kind of the there was the precursor to the uh, um, O'Rourke Hubbard cross country drive, I guess. Right. Yes, but the the virtue, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, but, yeah. When Beto O'Rourke and Will Hurd drove across, uh, Hurd, Texas, no, sorry, not Hubbard. Uh, yeah, I drove across uh, the United States because they, their flight was canceled, and so you had a Republican and a Democrat on a road trip together. That was I liked that one a little bit better because that was a little bit more spontaneous, right? Uh, and and organic, and also had a certain kind of like if you're on a desert island, like you can just go to the other side of the desert island. But right. if, you're a, if you're on a road trip with someone, I mean, that's right. And they also well, broadcast the road trip, which yeah, which was awesome. But that's like Flake and Heinrich, I think, had a couple pictures that they posted. But I don't, yeah, I don't exactly. There were, was yeah, and there was some other media coverage. I can't remember what how they publicized this, but the herd thing, the herd and, and O'Rourke show got got more uh, visibility. But and the I mean, if you can get along with someone on a long road trip. I mean, that really does say something, about, at least about you interpersonally, because as anyone who knows has been on a road trip with someone they don't, know, they don't much care for, it is just straight Murderville by the, you know, by the, you know, that, that is your, like, your first night on that road trip is spent at, like, Homicide Town. Yeah. If you're, and we're, you know, Homicide Town population two, soon to be one, right. uh, if, you're, you know, if, if, uh, if things go south on that. So I commend that. The part that I also like is that if memory serves, after this long road trip, uh, O'Rourke and Heard got back to D.C. and, of course, both voted with their own parties. Yeah. Exactly as they've been anticipated. Right. Which actually brings us back to the point about uh, uh, Jeff Flake and uh, mm-hmm. some of these other uh, Republicans, uh, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, um, even Lisa Murkowski and um, uh, Susan Collins, to some extent. Um, they are still all Republicans, and they all still support Republican values and conservative, um, well, we'll call it theology because sometimes it is almost that. Um, so just because they are castigating Donald Trump, uh, because they're being honest about things, you know, in, in this case, the enemy of your enemy is not necessarily your friend. Um, you know, these people aren't jumping parties. 
when uh, um, Santorum jumped parties or, or Jeffords became an, uh, an independent, those were pretty unique circumstances with politicians who had been around a long time and the party had kind of moved away from them. Um, I don't know that somebody like Flake or Murkowski can say the party has moved away from them when they are relatively newer elected officials than Santorum was. Sure. Um, and anybody holding their breath thinking John McCain is going to jump ship and join the Democrats, um, you know, yeah, has, has not has, has basically been paying attention to none of this for yeah, we, essentially the entirety of the man's recording. Yeah, we, we have we've given our uh, uh, core of discovery direct orders that if we see one of these people floating around next to take next to our ship, we are not to save them. That's exactly. That, that, this is precisely it. There are there are rules for uh, for giving for offering succor on the high seas, uh, you know, and and we you know we, we don't listen. We don't make the rules. We just follow them. Uh, we, we do sort of make the rules. Uh, one of which, it's worth reminding, is it is an ironclad law of taking ship uh, that the enemy of my enemy, as you say, is not my friend. The enemy of my enemy is often a complete psychopath. Yeah, yeah, and I'll give a, a good example of this, and maybe we can move on to the next thing we're not going to talk about. But uh, you and I both joined Steve Jackson pretty frequently. Um, we've done it together, in, in fact. Uh, Steve Jackson is a, uh, we've mentioned him on the podcast before. Uh, if you live in the San, San Francisco area, you should check him out during uh, drive time radio. Uh, he, he's a, a uh, thoroughly left-leaning uh, radio host. He's, he's funny. He's got really great guests, um, and we enjoy joining and talking politics. And uh, this week I was on, um, and a few guests before me, Rick Wilson was on. Uh, Rick Wilson is a Republican strategist, um, very clever. Um, he's become a Twitter sweetheart and an MSNBC sweetheart because he says he's anti-Trump and has been um, uh, aboard the Never Trump ship uh, from the get-go. Um, and basically everything he said was going to happen has happened. And uh, Steve Jackson was kind of fawning over him a little bit. And when I got on, when I got on the air, I, um, I, I said, you know, it's tough, it's a tough act to follow Rick Wilson. And Steve said some complimentary things about her. And I said, you know, the thing, and I said, you know, the enemy of the enemy is not necessarily our friend in this case. And it should be remembered that Rick Wilson has run some of the most brutally anti-democratic ads in the last, you know, half a dozen cycles of any Republican. Rick Wilson is behind the, uh, the ads uh, against Max Cleland when yep. Max Cleland was up for re-election. Uh, for those of you who may not remember this bit of not-so-ancient history, uh, Max Cleland is the triple amputee uh, Vietnam veteran who represented Georgia. Uh, and uh, Rick Wilson was behind an ad uh, that essentially questioned his commitment to the security of the United States uh, post-9-11. It yep. was, to my view, and I get this, like Wilson on Twitter and on, and on MSNBC and everywhere else can be quite funny, um, he's, he, I think he's very genuine in his, in his disdain for Donald oh, sure. Trump, but then he expresses a will that's always very appealing. Uh, and I can see, you know, and, and I mean, you know, Steve Jackson's a sharp guy. I can see why, I can see why Rick Wilson would appeal to him. Uh, but, but what Wilson did in Georgia is to my mind, one of the, one of the darker moments in the business of electoral politics in the last 25 years. And that's, that's really saying something. Yeah, that really is saying something, but I agree with you. That ad was, uh, was pretty awful. Um, so what we, what we, so to, what you can take away from what we're not talking about here is listen to Steve Jackson cause he's a lot of fun. Um, and don't get, uh, seduced by Republicans who say things that are uh, against Trump and think that they are necessarily your friends because they're still going to vote to, um, cut taxes for the wealthy, to cut regulation, to limit uh, women's ability to choose, to limit opportunities for uh, minorities, to limit immigration, to limit, um, uh, LGBTQ rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. So be aware, seducers are on the loose. 
guard your intellectual and uh, and moral virtues. Yeah, and yes. guard your guard your uh, sons and daughters as they become voting age. That's exactly right. Now, what else are we not going to talk about? So, friends of the podcast, they don't know we exist. Friends of the podcast, uh, college football humor podcast, shut down full cast, used to refer to the University of Indiana. Or it's Indiana University, excuse me. Got someone out there is furious about that mistake I just made. Mister, <laughs> so angry. Um, Indiana University uh, used they used to be referred to as Team Chaos, not because they won a lot of games, they didn't, but because they pl- every game they played, win or lose, uh, was like an orphanage riot. I mean, it would you know it would, be, it would be one you know the games they won would be won on you know blocked kick blocked punts that featured two fumbles. You know, and the games they lost would be lost because they ran a triple reverse Statue of Liberty play that they botched. I mean, it was it was incon- every game was inconceivable. And then their coach left, and and I, I think they're probably going back to being a somewhat duller version of themselves. And it's a shame. They might win more games, but uh, they were an important uh, important uh, voice for chaos in the world. Fortunately, uh, there is you know the the mantle of Team Chaos has been. I think it's fair to say thoroughly. Uh, thoroughly taken up uh, and and uh, and adopted with pride uh, by the leadership of this administration. Yeah, I don't even know. I think they're actually redefining chaos into something that you know even James Glick would be surprised by. Yes, it's become a real art form. Yeah, I mean they are finding new and fascinating ways to just bobble things. And uh, we bring up first of all, uh, since we spent a little bit of time last week uh, actually discussing the mooch. I think that was actually our topic of discussion. Um, we were looking forward to to a long and entertaining relationship of, of consumers of the Mooch's content. And, alas, uh, it was not to be. Alas, oh, alas, Anthony Scaramucci, we hardly knew ye, and what we knew was really troubling and appalling. Yeah, Mooch's gracias, as I saw on uh, on on Twitter. So, uh, General General um, uh, John Kelly, uh, former Secretary of um, Department of Homeland Security, um, four star Marine General. Um, has now taken over as chief of staff after Reince Priebus was fired um, and Spicer quit, which uh, people who read way too deep into the machinations of this White House um, have come to believe was the only purpose of hiring the Mooch. Um, General John Kelly um, fired uh, the Mooch uh, early Monday morning. Uh, He was escorted from the building. Uh, He apparently had dinner later that night at uh, the uh, Trump Hotel um, and is planning some sort of online something or other uh, announcing what he's going to be doing next. An uh, online event is all it's being yeah. called tomorrow. So, you know, look forward to this. As we discuss, look forward to more good online content. Yes. <laughs> well, so... Uh, um, the online content industry. Hurrah! Mike, Mike Cernovich, is that who it is? The, the Trump apologist? What the, the Trump apologist, the, uh, guerrilla mindset character, the world, America's leading mindset expert. Uh, and also hawker of some kind of garbage, apparently garbage, I don't know, maybe this stuff really works. Uh, there's almost no possibility that it does. Uh, a dietary supplement, which he calls nootropics, hmm. that is meant to, uh, because, because nothing says I am a legitimate professional, like take these pills for your brain. Yeah. Although if nootropic wants to pay us, we will be more yes. than happy to hawk your wares. <laughs> brought to you by nootropic snake oils. <laughs> You'll be a regular Einstein with nootropics. Yeah. Just, just drink two, two Winchester quarts of this a day, and you'll be smarter than you ever have been before. You'll be the class brainiac with nootropics. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, so Cernovich, who's just a couple steps below Alex Jones in terms of crazy, um, apparently the Mooch gave him uh, the memo that he was working on for the communications department at the White House on how they should uh, reorganize and reorient themselves and what they should and his plans for what they were going to do. Uh, reading this this morning, and you can find it, we'll put it on the Twitter feed, but uh, he posted it up on Medium in full. Um, it's kind of, it, it's really baffling to think that the, those things weren't happening. I mean, it is just basic blocking and tackling uh, orders and instructions. You know, a White House communication staffer cannot go home until they have returned all their phone calls and responded to all their emails. Yeah, a lot of the stuff, so that those proposals and a lot of the stuff that General Kelly has done since he became uh, chief of staff has been, and I think as a, a sorry, forgive me, as a, as a point of protocol, I think I'm, we're no longer supposed to call them general. I think there's, a, there's an issue about referring to someone who has left the service to join civilian leadership by their, by their military title. So, right. And importantly, he's not a former general. He is a retired general. He's a retired general. Yes, correct. Uh, so anyway, John Kelly, Chief of Staff Kelly, uh, has instituted apparently some new, uh, this further to, the, to your point, instituted some new rules such as uh, any information that gets to the president must be vetted uh, first, confirmed for accuracy and also cleared through the chief of staff's office, uh, you, which include which forbids a practice that apparently was going on, people going into the Oval Office and leaving articles on the president's desk and then mm-hmm. walking out for him to find them later and comment on them. Which he would do. Which he would do. I mean, that 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 was not happening. That there that no that the president of the United States was receiving a flow of unconfirmed, uncontrolled information without order or sense a makes perfect sense for this big for team chaos oh yeah that is optimum team chaos uh and just i mean just peak team chaos and then but also is of course that was the way it was and yet also how could it possibly be yeah yeah i I mean we've all read a lot about how trump likes different or the media has said trump likes creating different power bases um, I don't necessarily believe that's true. I just think he doesn't have any control over his staff. So therefore, you have the Bannon group, you have the Kellyanne group, you have the Jared and Ivanka group, you have the Reince group. So General Kelly has now come in and tried to put some order to chaos, which, I mean, goat rodeo doesn't even begin to sound like what he's trying to do. Um, and the real question is, is uh, well, the, I mean, the major issue is, is that the biggest problem, the chief wrote, the chief goat is the president of the United States. Yes, this is exactly it. This is as as a as good friend of this podcast does actually know it exists in this case. Uh, hello, Mark, uh, if you're listening, listener number five uh, <laughs> likes to say about uh, you know gover- governing offices. Uh, if uh, you know if if someone if there's someone in a position of government, elected office or elsewhere, and and you hear the story, oh, they all you know they're really good, but they always have a bad staff. Uh, no, it is always uh, the elected officials' fault. It's always yeah. the appointee's fault. It is, if you have a, if you persistently have bads, look, anyone can make a dodgy hire. It can take a little bit of, it can take some time to get things right. But if the issue is with someone is, you know, they're great, but they're, they just keep finding bad staff members. No, what, and what, as you're saying, like, I think you're right. It's not that Trump generate that he designs these systems to create different power bases, because I don't think he is, I don't think he's clever enough, frankly, I think he's smart enough to, to develop, to actually think through what it means to have different power bases. Right. He's no Jack Welch. What he that's boy that's the truth of it. Uh, what he likes, what Trump likes, is but uh, in this sense he designs it or maintains it because he likes the chaos that results. Yeah, he benefits from the debilitating chaos that results because no one is there to threaten his primacy, and by threaten his primacy, I mean get him to do his job. And right. any of the like you know place restrictions on his ability to say 
watch Fox News for 10 hours a day instead of actually running an organization or, or potentially being president of the United States. Right. This is a 71-year-old man who ran a family organization, a family organization that, not, that was not responsible towards shareholders or a board of any kind. And he apparently continues to remain, have so much control over said family organization that he dictated this, the misleading statement that uh, Don Jr. released a couple of weeks ago about uh, the, the meeting with the Russian. Which again is 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 just marvelous team chaos yeah. because what you know what what you want it's important for someone who is who has demonstrated no meaningful managerial acumen over the over the totality of his career right like as it, I know we talked about this uh, in the in sort of pub, you know in in the discourse capital T capital D uh, I know we talked about this in the discourse uh, during the general election but uh, during the election twenty sixteen but Trump would have been it I mean the, the, it's just worth bringing up. Trump would have been better off taking the money he inherited, putting it in an index fund, and and golfing and watching Fox News for the rest of his life instead of attempting to run a run a run a business. His finances would have been better if he had not attempted to run the Trump Organization than if, than when he did. So this is someone who is not who is not good at this stuff. So you've got a guy who do, who cannot be you know who's who is nominally in charge of an enterprise that he is manifestly unfit to run. And by that I mean the Trump Organization. It gets worse when he becomes president. You know, not going to deign to do any any actual management or leadership, but boy, when it comes time to dictate the specifics of a naked lie, holy smokes, this guy is right in there. You know, you know, pen, you know, pen and pen and tiny hand, tiny um, hand, get this thing done. I just, I love it. It is optimum team chaos. I, I am just transported and enchanted by it. Yeah, I, and the Russia stuff just continues to get stranger and stranger. And Frank, you and I really haven't spent a whole lot of time diving into the investigation and other kinds of things, but. Uh, you know, the only observation I'll make this week about the Russia stuff is this week um, the uh, president apparently did sign, or he not apparently he did sign the uh, uh, new sanctions bill that was passed by just mind-blowingly huge bipartisan majorities in both the House and the Senate. Um, he did sign it apparently uh, belligerently, and then released a couple statements saying it was unconstitutional and other sorts of things because the uh, Senate was trying to control the president's uh, the executive authority to deal with, uh, with, with, ally, with uh, foreign powers. Uh, the reason that this sanctions bill was passed the way it was is to prevent him from being able to soften things up for the Russians because there's fear that he does these sorts of things. He's never, um, never once castigated or said anything bad, bad about Putin. Um, he continues to think that, say that the Russians didn't hack the election. So there, you know, regardless of if there was a big conspiracy and, and, uh, and uh, they were complacent or uh, cooperative or uh, directly worked with the Russians to do it. Who, who knows? I, I doubt it. I, I don't know that they were ever that organized. Um, but there is something very strange about th- this president's attitude towards Russia. Yeah, there's I mean, again, we have this. There's no point in going much further on this uh, than we have in the past, except to say that there is so much so very, very much smoke. There is a fire of some kind in here. Yeah, uh, but what I loved about the uh, the president's uh, two statements is that the first one was the uh, after he signed the bill. The first one was, I mean, a, a fairly reasonably cogent uh, professional uh, statement from the White House, just basically informing people that he had signed the bill. Um, I think there was some kind of resistance in there, but it was basically a, the president has signed this bill. Uh, you know, thank you all for reading this statement, which was uncharacteristic of them. And then the second one was was a much longer screed that included a boast about the president's uh, about the president's success at running an organization. 
which again, we just, which you know, we've again just commented on as a complete farce, um, and also saying that this should that uh, that he can make much better deals with foreign countries than uh, Congress can, and he should be able to do so. So the first one appears to have been issued by by the kind of automatic statement by the automatic statement mechanism that most big organizations employ when they do something, and the second was clearly the president's personal temper tantrum that he was upset he didn't get to throw. So team chaos, you know, strength to strength. Yeah, you know, the only uh, last thing I'll say about Team Chaos is uh, there was uh, apparently a very bizarre meeting uh, to talk about Afghanistan yes. uh, strategy yes. where the president brought up uh, outside consultants who hurt uh, the 21 Club and they had to close for a year. Uh, you know, it, it's just bizarre that this is the sort of thing or that he thinks are appropriate analogies. Um, and also that this stuff gets leaked at this level, especially a National Security Council meeting. Usually that yes. stuff doesn't leak out. Um, but now there's a, an idea that has been floating around, apparently, that uh, General McMaster, who is uh, not a former general, he's still a member of the he's still a serving general, um, and the National Security Advisor, uh, the idea is that uh, they, uh, Mattis and uh, Dunford, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, will uh, move uh, General McMaster to take over Afghanistan, give, give him a fourth star, uh, thereby moving him out of the White House because apparently Trump does not like him. He has lost favor. <laughs> sure of course of course again that was that will, will you know that was that was that is that makes perfect sense for these people you know if we can just get rick perry moved over to homeland security uh which has been part of oh, the, jesus they keep talking about that don't they part of the discussion yeah exactly basically the idea is there are only so i mean I, what i love is the notion that there are this this thing is so dysfunctional that you cannot find enough people for all the jobs. So there's forever one seat. It's like the opposite of musical chairs. No <laughs> one is eliminated. <laughs> just the music stops. Everyone sits down. You realize one important chair, there's no one sitting in it. And so the music starts again. Then you is that, is that why Trump is always seating and seated in every picture? He doesn't want to get up from the chair. He thinks somebody's going to take it. That's exactly right. He's afraid someone is going to take his chair. He's also, I, I'm sure, believes that standing burns up, again, burns up that energy of which human beings have a finite amount uh, and and will precipitate his, and will lead to his death sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is specifically about the fact that all those pictures from the Oval Office, when people gather around the desk, uh, he is always sitting and they are always standing. I don't know what it is about that that bothers me so much. Isn't that, isn't that pretty typical? I don't think so. I mean, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't remember seeing many pictures of President Obama, even with, you know, with staff or, or celebrities or whoever was in the Oval Office when he's just sitting at the desk and they're standing next to him. Often stand, that's true. And in, in most of his photograph, photographs from the, from the Oval Office, uh, President Obama was often standing or otherwise doing something. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, he was, in a, you know, he was a vigorous adult as opposed to uh, Donald Trump, who, again, believes that human beings have a finite amount of energy that when they use all of it, for example, through exercise, they will die. This is yeah. a real president of the United States, please. And based on his body shape, um, he may live forever if that yes. theory actually pans out. <laughs> he is due, I have to say, he's got a theory of the case and he is executing on that theory to admirable uh, result. Yeah, yeah. What, what is it? Uh, he's spent uh, 22% of his time in office uh, on a golf course now? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's inspiring. Yeah. Uh, what, what was the number I saw? Uh, uh, the latest um, uh, Quinnipiac poll, the Q poll, um, 71% of people say that the president of the United States is, quote, not level-headed or agree with the statement that the president is not level-headed. 54% of people say they are embarrassed to have Trump as president. 60% say that Trump believes he's above the law. 
and 57% say Trump is abusing, abusing the powers of his office. Boy, that's just, a, that's, that's just a great slate of numbers. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, you know, listen, numbers go up and numbers go down, but the essential truth of team chaos remains. Yeah. yeah. And bear in mind, uh, again, uh, for those of you who have been uh, um, pulled into the seduction, uh, it, nothing can happen to remove Donald Trump from office without Republicans starting that process. Correct. Yeah. So again, do not be seduced. Uh, you know, we've got, we've got team chaos for a while on which subject, uh, you know, one of the, one of our favorite members of team chaos, this is a strong move. I like this, Frank. This is a good, this is a good transition. This is, I mean, this is, this is deft. This is deft. My <laughs> friend. Uh, one of our favorite members of team chaos, uh, a man to whom we gave a better and also dumber, uh, sports nickname than he deserves. Uh, Jefferson Beauregard sessions, the third Trebo. Uh, Trebo has struck again, first assured by uh, or emboldened uh, by uh, new chief of staff, John Kelly, that uh, he is not expected, uh, he being Trebo, is uh, not going to be fired, nor is he expected to resign. That The president is still mad at him, but that he still ha- but that he has a job for the foreseeable future. Um, and who amongst us has not been told that the head of our organization is furious with us, hates us, and, and, you know, and really wishes we would just wither and die, uh, but we are not going to be gotten, but we are safe in our job for the time being. I mean, there's, there's, your, there's a call I think we've all received at one point or another. Um, uh, some I mean, of you have to assume that that's just Kelly kind of reading the, the tea leaves a little bit and recognizing what the fallout would be if, if Sessions goes. Yeah, well, both no, from that, Trump's that, base, the Republican Party as a whole, and the fact that um, who is it? Grassley is the head of the judiciary now, and yeah. Grassley has said there, we're, there's no time to do hearings for a, for a new nominee. Yeah, it's. I mean, you know, this is this is clearly. I, I if if this is actually some if this was coming from Trump, I will eat my hat. Yeah, uh, this is this is clearly Kelly saying I am not going to permit the Attorney General to be fired at this stage. Yeah, um, and and I do not want him to resign at this stage. It's very important that we not do this. I mean, this is Kelly doing one war at a time, right? Uh, first, stop people from leaving Breitbart articles on the president's desk. We'll worry mm-hmm. about the Attorney General next week. So emboldened <laughs> by this, uh, by you know, by by this just staggering vote of confidence um, that his, you know, that the athletic director has called him the coach and has issued a press statement saying they have absolute confidence in his abilities, which means he will be fired before the end of the season. Uh, <laughs> Trebo has, uh, has, has, has struck out on a new, uh, on a, on a new initiative. And then that initiative is to explore the answer to a question that a lot of people online have been asking, which is who's the real racist specifically uh, Trebo is pursuing uh, an investigation into discrimination. I can't believe I'm saying these words. God help me. Into dis- I can't do it. Yes, I can. I found the strength. Into discrimination against white applicants to universities. The theory is behind this investigation that affirmative action represents discrimination against white applicants, and that therefore this is a good use of the Department of Justice's resources. And what I would just like to say about this is, I mean, its content speaks for itself. This is the kind of thing that happens in the world in which we live, and that world is dumbest timeline America. This is, of the things that this administration has put forth, this actually might be for, I mean, stripped away of everything. It's not the most evil thing they've suggested by a country mile, although it's pretty evil. Um, it is not the most malicious, it's not the most uh, reckless, but it is without question, to my mind, the single dumbest thing that they could possibly have articulated. And I, am, I stand 
if if it weren't for the if it weren't for you know a clear view, I think of what this represents and the constituency that this was meant to appease, I would stand in total awe of the just gorgeous stupidity of this particular initiative. It is it's a wondrous creation uh, that comes from a singular intelligence, and and I I didn't even think Trebo was capable of this, and I, I have to say I underestimated him, and I owe him an apology. Yeah, it, it's pretty astounding. Um, you know. It, Affirmative action uh, applicants uh, and um, uh, kids who go to school on a, you know through affirmative action programs tend to do much better than kids that don't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our good friend Jared. Um, those of you who don't know, uh, Jared and I went to the same high school. He was a few, he was a few years behind me. Um, Jared went got went to Harvard uh, because Daddy wrote a check. Um, I assure you that his grades um, and his SAT scores did not warrant his entry into Harvard. Um, there are. There are quotes from the college guidance folks at, at our uh, f- um, joined alma mater um, stating that he shouldn't have gotten in. But, you know, daddy wrote a check. And for most people, that's just not an option. Uh, I saw a statistic this year um, or recently that uh, this year, the um, entering Harvard freshman class is over 50 percent minority. Yes. Yeah. For the first time, Harvard has been around for over 300 years. This is the first time the entrant, the the incoming class has not been majority white. Yeah, uh, but you know, so 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 isn't it time now? If ever there was a clarion call to investigate the possibility of prejudice against white people, now is that time? No, yeah. I mean it, you bring. I mean you're bringing up Jared is a perfectly good point. Like I mean, if there's anything that really, if there's anything that really needs investigation, it's. Uh, and I, I am not the originator of this thought, but you know, if there's anything that really needs investigation, it is uh, the you know the role and influence of legacy admissions, bought admissions, and uh, and every other thing. The only reason that you would pursue an investigation into the uh, into uh, the idea that affirmative action is somehow discriminatory against white people uh, is if you are beginning with the premise that uh, there is no such thing as systemic or institutional racism. Uh, right. And that's just, which is not a, a not an intellectually or more morally supportable position. So I predict, and here's where I will leave it on this one. I would say that because this is dumbest timeline America, and because there is case law supporting uh, affirmative action as a constitute as a as a permissible measure, as a legally permissible measure, uh, to uh, uh, enforce our notions of uh, of equality and equity uh, and opportunity in this country, I would predict that there will be some incredibly dumb executive order that will come out of this. Possibly a really stupid piece of legislation, but I really feel like executive order is more the way that this is going to go. Yeah, there will then be uh, several countersuits, uh, some by the institutions themselves, uh, or by lawsuits, some by the institutions themselves, some some by students who who have been or are at risk for getting fucked over by this. Uh, those uh, those uh, suits will be contested. They'll be contested for a good long time. They will potentially be contested until after this uh, administration is gone. And then those suits will be dropped, and by the next administration. And as a result, we nothing will be nothing will have been learned, nothing will have been gained. Uh, we will have spent a great deal of money, uh, devi- you know, been unnecessarily divisive and hostile, and otherwise have just wasted everyone's time, energy, and goodwill. Because again, this we we live in a world we dodge. I think I, I don't want to. Sp- 
go too far off board here, but I think we have uh, overboard here, but I think we have dodged the bullet of living so far in the world where the worst possible thing happens all the time. We are really in a spot where the, you know, the outcome to bet on is the dumbest possible thing. And that would be the dumbest possible outcome. So that's the one I'm putting all my chips on for what happens here. Yeah. Uh, and, and with that, um, Frank, why don't we move into the one thing we do want to talk about this week? Yes. Um, let's talk about something we want to talk about for God's sake. And this is going to strike some of, you know, our seven or eight listeners, um, a little bit bizarrely, but, um, let's preface this by saying, if you are a good candidate and you can raise the money, you should run. Let's preface it with that. Um, now that that's out of the way, let's talk about uh, Lieutenant Colonel Amy McGrath and uh, Randy Ironstash Bryce and their long shot races or potentially not long shot races. Um, and we bring this up in the context that um, Amy McGrath, who is a, uh, was, is, was a Marine, uh, she was the first woman to pilot an F-18 in combat, um, uh, obviously incredibly well qualified to, to be able to do that. Um, she launched a campaign in the Kentucky, I should know this all the time, I had Kentucky 6th. Kentucky 6th. And um, with a phenomenal ad by uh, Mark Putnam, who is one of the Democratic um, uh, ad makers that tends to make very good stuff on a regular basis. Um, and, and the other uh, race that we're mentioning is um, the Iron Stashes in the Wisconsin 1st against uh, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. Uh, he is an iron worker, uh, lived his whole life in, in, in the district, um, and also launched with a very powerful ad. Um, and this went, this, you know, uh, obviously lit up the progressive Twitter sphere and Facebook and everything else. And it's all everybody be, can be talking about. And we bring this all up to talk about, does it make sense for people to get so excited about races that are uh, probably very long shots? Um, and even with candidates um, who may potentially be very good are still in long shots. And we point to the Georgia 6th as an example, uh, the amount of money, time, and effort that was spent to lose in a district where there just weren't enough Democrats to begin with. Um, so, you know, with that, why don't we turn to the Kentucky 6th first? Uh, Frank, you know Kentucky pretty well, so why don't you talk about this a little bit um, and, you know, as sort of the intro to the district? Sure. I, I wouldn't claim a lot of expertise on Kentucky, but I've campaigned there. Uh, I, well, you know I, more uh, than me. Therefore, between the two of us, you are the expert. <laughs> but, I have, but I have watched uh, the entirety of Justified several times. Um, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, that's, that's pretty, it's shot in California, but I mean, you know, it's got everything you need to know. <laughs> uh, so uh, the Kentucky 6th, I can, first of all, this, this is a, a, a good ad. Um, again, you know, Putnam makes, makes very good ads. Uh, this is obviously a very, uh, committed and very courageous candidate, very promising one, I think. So I can see why people have gotten excited about it. Uh, the Kentucky sixth is the town of Lexington, uh, and it's in the, and some, in the, some of the surrounding counties uh, and towns. It's, it's a tough nut. It's a very, very tough nut to crack. Uh, it's, it is an R plus six on, uh, on the cook PVI, which is a, a challenge <laughs> to put it mildly. Uh, it does have a, a democratic reg, a democratic registration advantage, uh, but it does not obviously have a democratic performance advantage. Uh, it's historically, it, it is one of those places that the right candidate has been, the right Democrat has been able to win as a democratic mayor, uh, Lexington does or did. Uh, so it's, you know, you can get elected, you can get elected citywide in that area as a, as a Democrat. Uh, there have been democratic congressmen recently, uh, one, uh, one in 2010, I think actually, uh, you know, by, uh, I mean, a, just, just a whisper, like, say, oh, here we go, 640 votes. 
Um, and then, uh, and then the current, the Republican incumbent, uh, Barr, uh, came back and won in 2012, um, uh, by about 4%, uh, in 2014, uh, when I was there, he won by about 20%. Uh, and then he's just, I mean, he, now he's, now he's sitting on a 20% plus majority. No, more than that. He actually, um, and th- this was sort of, you know, you mentioned that there were more Democrats registered, but, uh, the vote totals in uh, 2016, the most recent election, uh, he increased, um, by 50,000 votes over his 2014 total and Democrats got 20,000 less than they got in 2012, which is uh, the last presidential election. So. Yeah. I mean, and, and that, that's exactly, I mean, it's, and Andy, Andy Barr is just out. I mean, he's like, he, I mean, he, he's figured it out. Yeah. I think in terms of winning this district uh, and it's, you know, so you look at someone and, and this is not to discourage anyone from, you know, from, uh, you know, from supporting a democratic candidate in the Kentucky six. It's not any, it's not to say this is not a doable proposition, if everything went right, it's potentially a doable proposition. Uh, truthfully, you know, I think this is not one that I would put at the top of at the top of my list, or even in my top twenty races. Uh, maybe not even in my top forty. Uh, but it's but it is a you know it's but it's a worthy thing. And I have to say, if anyone is thinking about getting into the field, uh, you know, if you want to go out for a couple of weeks or for a you know for a week or even just the GOTV period, if you're you know one of those folks who's not necessarily professional politico. But is you know looking to go out into the field and do some good for a candidate. I highly recommend the quality of living of campaigning in the Kentucky Sixth. <laughs> and if you feel like uh, like that's what you want to do, uh, you know, I let me just put in a plug now for Stella's Kentucky Deli on the corner of Jefferson Street and Ballard Street. Uh, have the grits. There you go. Yeah, and you know, again, um, McGrath seems a much better candidate for uh, in general and for the district than uh, Ossoff was in the Georgia Sixth. And uh, if you want to hear more about that, you can go back to our episode back in uh, the end of June. Um, there also, I just saw the list recently, there's some 20 open seats in the House um, by sitting members who will not be um, seeking re-election, people who, like Christy Nome in South Dakota, who will be um, running for governor, um, people like Beto O'Rourke, who are gonna, who's running for Senate now, um, other people who are just retiring, like uh, Rose uh, Lettinen from, from Florida, um, or somebody like John Delaney from Maryland, who's running for president. Um, and that is something that we're not going to talk about at all because it's just so incredibly dumb. And that's really saying something because we talk about a lot of dumb shit on this podcast. Yeah. But yeah, there, there are open seats. Also, just a quick, uh, another quick recommendation for everyone. Since you've mentioned uh, Christy Nome, it's very important that I, that I, we admonish our, uh, our listeners, uh, all of you, uh, to please go uh, to YouTube Look up, uh, look up Christy Nome's uh, 2012 campaign attack ad. You will not be disappointed. Hmm. That's all I'll say. It's 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 so very very good. All right, yeah. um, all right. So that's the Kentucky Six. And again, we're bringing this up just um, as sort of a, a way to think about what should Democrats be focused on, where should they be focused, where do they have the best chances of doing things what is making people excited and why aren't they necessarily getting excited in other races and how can you find candidates that are really, you know, interesting and qualified and sexy and, 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 you know, sexy from a electoral perspective. Let me add that as a, as, as, as a, a kind of perspective, like, right. Yeah. 
Um, you know, you know, people are looking at the same numbers that we are. And there was a morning consult survey that came out. It was conducted uh, last Thursday through Saturday, which shows a generic. And I don't put a lot of Frank and I've talked about this before. Neither of us put a ton of stock into this sort of poll uh, question. But it shows a generic Democrat leading a generic Republican 44 percent to 37 percent with 19 percent of registered voters undecided. Now, to me, the 19 percent is far more interesting than the, than the Democrat lead by what is that? Seven points. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that that number, yeah, the generic one, generic one is a is an interesting piece of. It's an interesting way to track things. Piece of data, it is not. It, it tends to be looked at as a dispositive. You know, this is the advantage that Democrats Republicans go into. Um, my experience of it has been that it doesn't. It very rarely holds up on a on a constituency by constituency basis, and you need look no further than the fact that every party has, you know, every election there is an advantage by some party on the generic national ballot. And, or even, and, and yet incumbency is the single greatest predictor of whether or not you'll be reelected. Right. Um, and that beats the absolute holy hell out of uh, party prediction, out of uh, party preference at both the national and indeed at the constituency level. I mean, it is very far from unheard of uh, for you to have a poll in a congressional district that has a party advantage, a generic candidate party advantage in one direction. Uh, and then for a, the for an incumbent candidate of the opposite party to be reelected handily, uh, because people don't like Congress, but they tend to like their own congressman. Right, that's a really good way to, to to look at it. I mean, when they talk about this generic Democrat leading a generic Republican, this is likely not because people are in love with Democrats. It's because they just really don't like Republicans right now. Um, Which is again, all relevant, but it's not it's not dispositive in the way that it's often yeah. sold. But again, the nineteen percent undecided, I think, is really the more interesting number to look at. Yeah, um, because so, that tells you what you're playing with. Yeah, um, which is also why it becomes so important to uh, match candidates with the district, um, because that 20% is actually what you're going for. So you need somebody that's actually going to be appealed to that 20% as opposed to either of the bases. Um, but with that, let's talk about the Wisconsin first. Again, this is uh, Speaker Ryan's um, seat. Um, the last number I saw, Frank, you may know better, but the Cook PVI number was it's an R plus five. Mm-hmm. Um I don't see any way, shape, or form that the Republican Party will let the Speaker of the House lose his seat. Um, it's not unheard of. Uh, uh, what was his name? Tom Foley was Speaker, and he lost, right? Yeah, and uh, and, and big people can be not. They tend to be more vulnerable. Significant leaders actually have recently tended to be a little bit more vulnerable from primaries rather than yeah. from general elections. But yeah, Eric Cantor can, being a perfect example. Eric Cantor, yeah, exactly. Eric Cantor being the best example. Um, but it's not unknown for a major party leader to face a significant challenge. But it's, uh, I mean, it's it is pretty rare. Um, and and this is a this is a district where, you know, it was the you know Iron Stash's ad was terrific. Uh, Phenomenal. He's, He's obviously a, you know, I mean, he's obviously a, a very committed guy, and he seems like a very worthy guy. Um, I understand why that ad prompted people to, to, you know, donate to his campaign and to be interested in him and to support him. I like so. The, but this is a play. You know, Ryan has been outperforming the PVI for a very long time. He appears mm-hmm. in, appears invulnerable. He's a good match for his district. Um, it would, I mean, it, it would take a tidal wave of just unbelievable proportion to create enough of a headwind to, or to create enough momentum. I was mixing my metaphors there, uh, to, to carry a, you know, to carry a democratic victory in that district, uh, which does not necessarily, this is one of the points that I want to make here. There are a couple of objections that come up when you look at somewhere like the Kentucky sixth or the Wisconsin first, I've heard, I've heard this phrase of question and I, I just want to talk about it for a second. Why are the Democrats spending money in Wisconsin one or Kentucky six? It's a good question, but keep in mind when you see fundraising totals or expenditures in places like this, 
a lot of this is not the Democratic Party or the De- or the DCCC sending money to these districts. Oh, it's right. these districts running good. It's these these campaigns running, you know, good ads, um, you know, getting them out nationally and getting national or getting, you know, getting national attention or getting support from a major organization like, you know, like Emily's List or, uh, you know, you know, any number of other organizations that can that can help direct money as well as give it. Uh, and that's where the money is coming from. So if you see, you know, Wisconsin first, I mean, a potential, you know, a very steep hill to climb, arguably a hopeless hill, uh, you know, nonetheless, a bunch of money being raised and spent there. It doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, someone, you know, in the the, D- the DNC DTRIP uh, joint headquarters was like, oh, yeah, let's spend a shitload of money there and see if something happens. Um, you know, that's these are individual candidates who are out in the, if you will, in the fundraising marketplace competing and, and winning, winning donor dollars. Uh, and there's the only way that the party could stop that would be uh, to either forbid the candidates from doing it, which would be, which would be incredibly dumb, uh, and also uh, create and also just be wildly counterproductive. That would be a genuine problem, uh, or to try and tell consultants that they're not able to, you know, the campaign consultants, you know, someone like Putnam, for example, the guy who cut the Kentucky Sixth ad, tell them, oh, you can't practice your trade for these these candidates. Um, and that's, I mean, that, that's just not a viable position. You can't, as a party, you don't, you can't have your campaign apparatus telling consultants they can't apply their trade. Right. Uh, it's, it's, that's just not doable. So to a certain degree, there's always going to be these incredibly inspirational candidates who are in, you know, long shot, maybe no shot districts who are able to, by virtue of their persuasiveness and their personal narratives are able to garner a large amount of support nationwide and, you know, and run well-funded losing campaigns now. And, and here I will close on this. Uh, that is not always necessarily a bad thing because although the Republican Party and its apparatus has an enormous amount of money, getting that money raised and deployed, it is, it, it is not a limitless pot of cash that can be moved and deployed efficiently all the time. It is possible and useful to tie down Republican – it is possible to tie down Republican resources in districts where they really shouldn't have had to spend that money defending someone. Um, and that can be really useful. I mean, if you look at the cost of defending Mitch McConnell from Allison Lundergan Grimes in 2014. I was about to bring that one up. Yeah, a seat that, uh, you know, I mean, a, a race that was ultimately decided by something like 14 points, uh, you know, in, in, spite, in, in spite of some polls a couple of weeks before that indicated it might be slightly closer than that. Uh, but the ultimate cost of that to the Republican Party was, you know, well into the tens of millions of dollars in terms of the money that he had to raise to defend himself, that they had to spend to defend him, that the other organizations came in to defend him. Uh, and, and that was money that could have gone to uh, could have gone to Virginia uh, to knock out to help knock off Mark Warner, who won by a you know won by the skin of his teeth. It's money that could have been spent in it's money that could have been spent in any state in the world, any state in the country that it was closer for Republicans than Kentucky, and that is virtually all of them. So there is some utility in bogging these leaders down, making them spend time in their districts, making them time to raise money, making them from a tactical perspective. There is some utility there. Yeah, you know, and another example we'll just mention uh, because uh, he actually is a friend of the pod. Uh, Joseph Kopser, who's um, a uh, retired uh, Army major, uh, is running in the Texas twenty-first, uh, which wow. is a little bit of Austin, a little bit of San Antonio, and a whole lot of Hell Country, uh, Hill Country, uh, and it's Cook PVI. Is uh, the last one I looked at was an R plus ten. Um, Smith has won uh, an average. Again, this isn't the median because some of these uh, races he was not challenged. Uh, he's been in that seat for 30 years, I think, and he's won on an average of about 50 points. Yeah. And Lamar Smith is your kind of, 
replacement level, you know, uh, Texas business Republican. Uh, yeah. and, and that's, and, and having, and this is, I mean, again, this is a desperately, desperately long shot. Um, but it's, a, but it's a, you know, I mean, cops are a good story and, you know, with the right, with the right mix of, you know, national environment and, you know, maybe, you know, a break or two. I mean, this, these are, these are tough hills, right? Every time we talk about this, it's, you know, with the right national climate and a break or two, which almost never stacks up. I mean, you almost never get the right national climate and the breaks you need in order to be able to pull these things off. Uh, but it doesn't mean that making Lamar Smith raise money to defend his own seat and making the national apparatus, uh, the Republican apparatus, spend money. In the, I mean, you know, the, I mean, the, the NRCC has not had to spend money to defend the Texas 21st, right. um, probably since the Johnson administration. I mean, it's just not a done thing. And so the idea of having to make that, there is a lot of utility to opening up these spots because a certain amount of resource has to be expended just to make sure you don't do, you don't lose, you know, a Lamar Smith or a Paul Ryan. And that the, the widening of that map doesn't mean that you're going to pick them up, but it does mean that you're forcing them to expend their resources more broadly. And all of this supposes that as a Democratic Party, we have the resource to do this. We have the resource to contest these seats in a meaningful way. Um, but there's a way to do it smartly. And I actually looking at the map that the DTRIP is putting together, I, I think there's it's a it's pretty defensible on that basis. You know, when they say we have a map of sixty to sixty-five, sixty to seventy seats, it doesn't mean you know we anticipate picking up sixty to seventy seats. It means right. we're going to make them defend that many uh, and stretch them really, really thin. Right, right. So you know, as we preface this whole little section about uh, if you're a good candidate and you can raise the money by all means run. Um, but um, for those of us who are in the uh, either volunteering or donor class, um, you know, write a check to somebody who writes a good ad, but you know, spend time and effort and more money on people who are fighting in races uh, either to defend their seats um, or in races where um, it's, it's a little bit more of a coin flip than uh, a long shot. Yeah, exactly. This is, you know, I will, it, this is exactly it. Uh, we, you know, I would never tell someone not to volunteer or to donate to a candidate who really moves them and inspires them. I will say that as a donor, you are also an educated consumer, be an educated consumer. Yeah. And also for the daily's point, if you can raise the money, you can do it, do run, um, you know, for, you know, again, assuming perhaps a wider audience than we might possess, uh, y'all <laughs> don't, don't necessarily all of y'all run for Congress all at the same time. This is legitimately a problem in the democratic party right now. Whereas, you know, everyone is running for Congress at the same moment, man, some of y'all please run for city council yeah uh, please please run for mayor please run for school board please run for state house yeah. uh, you know it's okay not every you know there's only five there's only 435 seats in congress you all can't be congressmen uh you know i mean seriously think about the good you can do in your local communities as well uh i have an enormous amount of admiration for people who you know just who decide you know what i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna run locally here i'm gonna make a difference in my you know my hometown and my home state that's yeah there's a lot, there's an enormous amount to be said for that. It's not, and also that doesn't have to be just because that's where you start. doesn't mean that's where you have to end. Yeah. It's a great stepping stone for sure. And uh, it's also, you know, as Frank just mentioned, there's some thousand odd seats uh, across the country that were lost uh, over the previous eight years. So lots of, lots of um, um, time and money and effort and space to make up. So if you're thinking about running, uh, find a competent political consultant who can give you some, you know, real good, honest, uh, honest to God advice, feel free to call me and Frank. Um, but also really think about running locally. Um, and with that, thank you so much for joining us on this guestless episode. Uh, we do hope to have a guest next week. Uh, our travel schedules have sort of made it difficult to try to schedule a guest uh, the last couple of weeks, but we will aim to have one next week. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Really, those reviews really are very helpful. Follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in phasmid, 
Also, please check out our new Facebook page and like us and follow us there too. And with that, Frank, where are we headed? This week we take ship for Baltimore, Maryland, Charm City itself, uh, partly because we have a powerful need to hear someone order a bow and O in a Maryland accent. Uh, let that stick with you for a second. Uh, but principally because we have an opportunity, an opportunity for the owner of the Baltimore Ravens, uh, Steve Bishotti. This past week, the Ravens expressed interest in signing former San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick. Uh, Kaepernick made headlines last year by taking a knee during uh, the national anthem before uh, NFL games as a protest against unchecked police violence against black Americans. Uh, this uh, provided an opportunity for a large number of extremely courageous NFL executive, executives to give anonymous quotes calling Kaepernick a traitor. Uh, and he's been effectively blackballed by the league, uh, despite being a better option uh, than virtually all of the backup quarterbacks out there and many of the starters. Uh, and the Ravens seemed about to do their team a fairly significant favor uh, by signing him uh, to be uh, Joe Flacco's backup, uh, but passed after owner Steve Bishotti raised objections uh, to the to the signing, and, and Ray Lewis, of all people, gave gave Kaepernick a public scolding about making good decisions because, again, this is dumbest timeline America. Uh, the upshot is that the Ravens created uh, a, a, the very sort of media circus that they supposedly hoped to avoid by not signing Kaepernick. Uh, and they did this for no apparent reason. I mean, there's no reason to have waded into this to stuck their oar in, other than the idea that their leadership, and especially Bishotti, is just deeply, deeply thirsty. Uh, but as the old saying goes, uh, once you quaff, you can't stop. Uh, so we uh, are headed to Baltimore to offer the Ravens an opportunity uh, to uh, express that thirst in ever more helpful ways. Uh, they can take some equally useful public positions. Uh, perhaps they have a, a well-considered opinion on the proper ownership of the Irish province of Ulster. Or maybe they would like to conduct a press conference expressing their view on the Schleifig-Holstein question. Uh, perhaps there's a fight in a pool hall they'd like to get involved in. Uh, you know, the sky's the limit, really. The sky's the limit, really. And uh, we're here to help them develop a strategy to take advantage of it. Uh, so, friends, we take ship now for Baltimore. Take care, everybody.